out with the old, in with the new. Time to replace all of those legacy IT systems. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. Actually, it's not that simple. You might be running a supply chain application that's the backbone of your company. Whether you should swap it out right now for something new is a difficult question. But one thing's for sure. At some point, legacy software has to go. So how do you decide to make the change? Which systems are most vulnerable to failure? Which ones should be replaced first? Who should make the decision about going ahead? And what kind of peer pressure should be ignored? My guest today, Dominic Paul, National Vice President of Strategic Solutions for SunGuard AS, has the answers. He's also got a perspective on the role of the cloud in IT applications, both now and in the future. By the way, if you're a non-IT type like myself, you might find aspects of this discussion a little wonky. But hang in there, because Paul's message to top executives is crystal clear. So here is my conversation with Dominic Paul. Dominic Paul, welcome to the program. Thank you. We're going to be talking about this issue of updating legacy systems, especially relevant in light of Microsoft's decision to stop supporting Windows XP, but of course there are many other versions of that throughout supply chain IT. I want to first ask you, the obvious alternative to a lot of legacy systems today is, of course, the cloud. Do you believe that the cloud is going to make all of these legacy systems obsolete? I do, yes, but not immediately, uh, not in the short term. And maybe the best way to illustrate that is with a story. Uh, I was in a cloud CIO summit. Sometimes I get asked to speak to uh, Fortune 2000 uh, CIOs on the topic of cloud, and I thought I would throw a little zinger out to them. And uh, I started, I did the keynote presentation, and I started out with a story talking very specifically about legacy systems, which... CIOs interested in cloud aren't necessarily waited on bated breath to hear about. And uh, I started by calling the Unix platform a legacy system. And almost to a man, all of the CIOs started dying in laughter. And the reason for that is there's so much pressure, so much press, so much uh, coin being spent about cloud eclipsing all of the legacy platforms of which I don't really consider Unix a legacy platform, nor did the CIOs. Uh, it, it, it really put in perspective what we're facing today, the amount of uh, intense pressure for organizations to move to the cloud. And I certainly do see in a five-year horizon that uh, it, it's going to eclipse all of the other platforms that are out there, such as iSeries, uh, Mainframe, even Unix as a platform. Uh, but that's, that's something that is iterative and, and not something that should be seen as a, a wholesale migration, at least right now. Where is the peer pressure coming from? Is it coming from software vendors who obviously stand to benefit from that switch, or is it coming from the IT people within companies or other companies that claim this just has to happen? What is the source of that? 
multiple areas. Uh, first is the hardware providers. Uh, they're obviously pushing uh, the new technologies in order to increase the revenues and uh, have people achieve the benefits of cloud, of which there are many and they're significant. I don't mean to detract from that. Uh, but you, then you also have uh, SaaS providers who are packaging all of their services in a bundle and delivering it together with the infrastructure. And those are typically uh, deployed on cloud-based platforms, Intel-based platforms. But you also have a significant amount of uh, pressure coming in from the analysts uh, and also from uh, the trade publications, meaning that uh, I always try to associate this with, you know, if you buy a car magazine, you know, everything is about the newest, the fastest, the newfangled, the, the most exciting car that's out there. And, you know, if you, if you read a car magazine from 15 years ago, it might go from zero to 60 in 9.4 seconds. Well, that was the latest and greatest then. You can buy a, a very inexpensive mid-level car that does exactly the same thing. And their job is to keep readership alive, and it's also to generate revenue and increase sales with the newest technology. So I, I see a tremendous amount of pressure coming from that area as well. So should I say guilty as charged <laughs> because I've certainly written my share of articles about the need to upgrade software and hardware systems? It, absolutely. The, uh, it, but guilty in a positive way, meaning that uh, everything – the scary part about talking about legacy platforms is you can be seen as a naysayer, and I'm certainly not that. I'm more of a realist. Every company has to have a cloud strategy that they're considering, and the benefits are tremendous. SunGuard, for example, a company that I work for, has invested tremendously in the cloud space, and we're certainly banking our future on it. Uh, what I'm trying to caution is that organizations that have legacy platforms, and I, I think we can talk about this in more detail in a moment, have to consider, consider very carefully as they're, they're making their plans to which applications they do move to the cloud. And eventually they will get there. It's just when and how. Yeah, I want to get to that in a moment. But first of all, I just want to ask you a question of terms. Are you using the term cloud and SaaS, that is software as a service, interchangeably, or do you distinguish between those two terms somehow? In this instance, no. There's no differentiation. What I'm talking about is a cloud-based infrastructure that's able to deliver a service. So cloud can be public, it can be private, it can be infrastructure as a service, platform as a service, or software as a service. Uh, when I think about a SaaS provider, software as a service, they're taking a cloud-based infrastructure and then they're adding uh, services, software platforms, all in a very contained SLA-able way on top of that. Um, and there are significant differences between them, but at least in the example of if I'm going to take my application and move it to the cloud, I am using it interchangeably. Let's talk about how companies should go about determining whether or not they need to change out their legacy systems and kind of cut out the noise and the peer pressure and talk about the practical aspects. So what are some of the major points, uh, point by point, that a company needs to keep in mind in order to make that determination? Uh, two things. First is I, I very strongly believe that with the advent of HTML5 and the ability to have device abstraction, what I mean by that is tablet, PC, phone, Android, Apple, whatever the case may be, consumers are looking to do whatever they want at any time with extremely high service levels. They don't have the patience for waiting. They don't have the patience for application incompatibility. And that's why the cloud is clearly where everything is going because all of that development is being done on Intel-based platforms, on cloud-based platforms. And anything that is customer-facing should be an extremely high priority in terms of what you're moving into the cloud. 
and your development effort should certainly be matching what the consumers are looking for. So device agnostic, as they say? Yes, very much so. From the start, though, isn't it important also just to make the business case? I mean, you know, just to go off, and if you have that money in your budget, to go off and do it without without understanding whether it actually is good for the business. Um, what are some of the steps you need to take there, and whom do you need to involve in the, in the discussion in order to make the business case for that change? That's a great question. Something that I've seen with our clients multiple times, that because of the vendor pressure and the media pressure, in terms of getting clients to move to the cloud, some are less ready than others to make that step, and they get directed by maybe some of the non-IT folk, even uh, even up to the CEO level. What is this cloud thing? What are we doing with it? We've got to get on board with this. We don't want to be left behind. IT is a they're constantly peering each other, especially at the CIO level, and uh, and fairly often, often enough to be a consideration, we get requests from clients looking for a cloud design and a cloud quotation and something that we can package for them but because they have budget, but they don't clearly understand exactly what they need it for, what they're going to use it for. And that, to your point, is the most and first critical step in terms of making that decision. It's what applications do you move to the cloud and which ones, at least for the time being, do you leave remaining on, on the existing platforms. Now, you also make the argument that this doesn't have to happen all at once, that you can make gradual changes. And I'm wondering, how do you tie that back to company strategy? Can you give us some tips on, on how you can determine just what kind of a rollout schedule to, to implement within your company that would be reasonable and, and, and effective? Yes, and I, I can think, I believe, three things top of mind. First is, very clearly in my mind, I would recommend that any net new application that's being deployed be deployed with the consideration of cloud in mind. And and why? Uh, if it particularly if it's customer facing, it needs to have that device abstraction layer associated with it. But because it's a net new or clean build, uh, there's no historical considerations to be worried about. You can develop this environment knowing that it's going to be on a cloud based platform. That's what I call cherry picking or shaving. You know, it's picking things that will have the biggest impact and ease of implementation. The second thing to consider is it, at SunGuard, we're less concerned about uh, individual platforms or individual applications. We're more concerned about a business process. What are the interdependent systems that need to work together as a process? And ultimately, if, if you're using ITIL terminology, a business service, how those platforms work together. So I'm less interested in how iSeries does pick groups and manages conveyor belts and inventory but more of how it works in terms of how do I need to reorder supplies to keep uh, just-in-time inventory basis or how am I able to do distribution for uh, selling ice cream sandwiches or whatever it is that you're working on. Uh, what are the interdependencies with the other applications and the other business partners and how all of that stuff works together? And you have to understand holistically all of those things, that orchestra or you know, that symphony of how all of these applications work together into the business process first uh, before you can even begin to consider which ones can be cherry-picked to go into the cloud. Uh, I remember reading a Gartner study not too long ago that said only about 15% of Fortune 2000 organizations truly have a clear understanding of the application interdependencies and mappings, and that is a critical first step uh, when you're picking what to move to the cloud because if you make the wrong choice, it can really uh, interject problems into the overall system interdependencies. 
And, of course, the use of the word interdependency by definition means that you're involving more than one person in this major decision. These aren't just decisions that are are cast down by the CIO from on high or even just the line of business. It sounds to me like you have to bring a number of people together kind of in a room and and collaboratively come to these conclusions. That's absolutely right. It can be multiple lines of business working together on top of multiple applications – And particularly when you think about supply chain and distribution, you're talking about partners as well. And those partners are either feeding or receiving what you make or what you're going to make or or distribute into that overall process. And it could be something as simple as EDI or it can be intricate partnership with parts for manufacturing organizations. If we're going to assume, and I guess we are going to assume, that most companies will eventually make a total migration to the cloud – what is a typical time span, a good time span for them to plan for that to happen? In IT, it's a, it's a funny thing. Five years is almost like the entire Mesozoic era. It's a million <laughs> years in terms of IT. It's, it's just such a long period of time, and, and I don't like to look that far out unless I'm doing extremely high-level strategic goals. So in IT terms, you, you want to be thinking a year and a half out to three years out, in my opinion. And you need to, because the amount of planning that's necessary for bringing over legacy applications into the cloud is not insignificant. And uh, understanding, even getting to do an application interdependency analysis, depending on the size of your organization, can take six or nine months just to start. So uh, it, it does represent a pretty significant effort. But even like a total eventual migration, that's not going to happen in a year and a half to, to, to a couple of years. Isn't, isn't that more likely to be like maybe even three to five years? Or is, or is that? Absolutely. Un- yeah. yeah. Yes. Um, within the kind of universe of supply chain software, is it possible to generalize which kinds of legacy systems are probably best suited for early replacement? Which ones are, 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 are in their current version are least useful and, and most likely to be kind of thrown away? The, the first thing that comes to mind for me is uh, I-Series. You know, that has been the bread and butter in terms of supply chain management and examples that I've seen. The, the I-Series platform is extremely mature, highly resilient, easily used, high, high knowledge base to tap into. It's, it's proven the test of time, right? And that represents probably one of the bigger challenges in my mind because there's so many people accustomed to using that platform and the way that it integrates with uh, other systems in terms of doing distribution, warehouse management, all the things that might go into that. Uh, In my mind, that represents one of the bigger challenges, uh, but most particularly if you are in a highly customized, uh, meaning an out-of-the-box customized application, or if you're in a completely uh, in-house developed application because it, it's it's less about the platform, more about the application itself. Uh, that's that's the key consideration in my mind. Uh, with a homegrown application or even a, a customized out of uh, out of in-the-box application, really what you're talking about is something that has the tenure and longevity of the iSeries platform. The developers of that code may no longer be with the organization. I've seen instances where they're no longer even alive for that matter, hmm. uh, believe it or not. And, and there's typically 
there's there's not fantastic documentation in terms of what was done and the customization for hooks and identifying hard-coded IP addresses. And there are so many anomalies once you get into the customization, especially when it's done by multiple people over time, that it becomes extremely difficult to truly understand in its entirety what was done. And uh, it, it can be on an iSeries platform, but it can be done on a mainframe or Unix platform as well. It's more about the type of coding. And that introduces the greatest complexities in, in terms of what is this thing and how am I able to move it into the cloud? Is there a uh, wholesale replacement that I can bring into it? And how do I understand all of the parameters and all of the coding criteria and everything that needs to be brought into it? And, and what's the effort associated with that? Versus uh, if, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. You know, can I live with working on this platform for X period of time? Because it, it would be so difficult to unravel this stuff that's not my first priority. There are other platforms and applications that I should move to the cloud first. So like you said in the beginning, it's an eventuality where all of this stuff has to come, but the idea is cherry picking which ones are going to be the easiest over time to bring into the cloud-based environment. Let's assume that a particular company has been sold on the value of the cloud and the need to migrate away from legacy systems. Are there any nagging concerns that remain with the cloud about security and reliability or are we past that discussion? I, I don't know if we're past the discussion, but I think it's more, it, it's very esoteric at this point, meaning that maybe the best way to illustrate this is with a story. Uh, I remember one of my earlier roles at SunGuard, I was uh, doing technology implementations. And I remember, you know, everything was FIDI or, you know, even bus and tag type connections at that point. And, uh, I was installing an HP 9000 with an EMC disk subsystem, and uh, we were doing it with Fiber Channel. And the 9000 came with this little booklet that said Fiber Channel, Technology of the Future. And I look back at that now because it makes me laugh. You know, Now it's extremely commonplace. So why the story? Because I remember at the time, uh, even getting away from direct attached storage was a pretty difficult thing for CIOs to swallow. They were trying to understand the investment moving to a sand-based technology. It was new, and there was lack of concern, and it was getting away from the physical and going into the logical. And forget the idea of moving to a multi-tenant environment. You know, the idea of intermingling data and security concerns and storage and all those type of things. What happens in those instances? So I, I relate that because it's very similar to the cloud today, meaning that the technology exists to create security within the cloud today. The idea being that uh, it just needs to have the knowledge base and the maturity and the comfort levels within the IT space for people to adopt it. So, you know, it's taking the new technology, which is very logical in nature, being able to understand the ability to drive uh, CPU performance, the ability to drive network performance and segregation, and then all of the storage security concerns that, that rely uh, within those environments as well. So the parallels are very similar. The technology does exist for it today. It's just a matter of recognizing uh, what the architecture can deliver and making sure that when you're deploying the environment, that is deployed in a secure way that is able to drive the performance that's necessary. But bottom line, it does. the cloud does deliver the level of security that companies need and want to be assured of. Correct. Some of the responsibilities are always the clients if, if they're looking for a partner. You know, making sure that uh, passing auditory requirements or regulatory requirements from end to end as a business process certainly always falls with the client. 
Uh, but there are certain services that third-party vendors can provide, whether it's data encryption at flight, data encryption at rest, demonstration of the physical architectures to make sure that we have the ability to segregate storage or segregate uh, VMs or or uh, segregate network segments and those type of things. So it's certainly a very collaborative effort, but it comes down from a root understanding of what the architecture is and how it's deployed. The other concern in addition to security for those who are moving to the cloud is reliability and continuity of, of service. And for that matter, not being afraid that somehow some server on a server farm far away is going to crash and you're going to actually lose so much of your data forever. Obviously, there are a number of cloud service providers up out there who are providing this service now in a reliable fashion, but I'm wondering to what extent is it a question of you get what you pay for? Do you pay more for more redundancy, or is basically what is being provided today by cloud service providers sufficient to back up your systems to the point where you needn't worry about some severe devastating losses in the event of uh, a server farm crashing, say? This is where the wordsmithing gets in because what you'll hear from different providers or different vendors is the, the same language, but the reality of it is very different. I'll, I'll start out by saying that not all clouds are created equal, uh, even to the point where if you look at our organization, we have four separate clouds that we've deployed, uh, meaning each one has an extremely specific use case, and that use, use case is to deliver at the proper price point, the proper performance level, and the proper risk levels back to the client. So uh, if you think about hearing about there's disaster recovery in the cloud or performance in the cloud or high availability and failover within the cloud, those are all great statements. But the question you always need to ask is, you know, dig a little deeper and say, what do you mean by high availability? What, what does that mean when you deploy your environment? Availability of disk, for example, uh, they might call highly available disk environment, something that's just uh, striped out into a cloud-based storage infrastructure, but it still eliminates the resiliency from an event that may affect the entire data center. Uh, the same thing goes to failover of VMs, where uh, we have the ability to fail over those VMs uh, within a data center, but that doesn't that may represent availability within that rack or within that data center, but it doesn't necessarily represent an outage that may affect the entire data center. And now take it a step further, if you, if you want to take another layer from the onion off, even if I have the ability to fail over VMDK within an environment, what does that mean for my data? Because the ability to process something without the associated data behind it doesn't mean anything. So what are your data propagation techniques? How do I replicate the data? How do I keep it current? How do I make sure that it's integral and intact uh, from a database perspective, that the transactions are all valid so that I can run production. So you know, the challenge is, is that you hear a lot of things about availability and disaster recovery, but you really need to peel the onion and truly understand exactly what they mean when they're saying that. Because from my perspective, you know, SunGuard's mantra is, I don't necessarily care about the data being available or the systems available. All I wanna do is regardless of the problem, whether it's a hard drive failure, all the way to a cratered hole in the ground from a tornado, is that when I flip open my laptop and I do what I have to do, I can do it. And that's our definition of availability. Certainly, though, the client of these services is going to be demanding or should be demanding a certain amount of redundancy uh, and backup. Uh, you know, again, you say there are various levels of it. I can't imagine this is something you want to go cheap on, though. Certainly not. 
I like the word appropriate in this case because not all applications are created equal, meaning that you don't want to have a fully diverse, highly available, active-active type environment for an application that's not too important for you. So you, you certainly have to make sure that the spend is, is based on the importance of the application or the importance of that application within a business process to the overall business. If, if that application is not available and it can be construed to lose a significant amount of money hour by hour, then you want to make sure that you have the highest levels of availability, which also equates to the highest level of spend. Uh, but when you think about an application that is less important in nature but still needs to be available, I'm willing to pay 60% less and maybe get that system online at a later time. There's trade-offs associated with that. So a lot of times when I talk about different clouds, it, it also incorporates the idea of different cloud DR strategies as well, and making sure that you have multiple different tiers and multiple different flavors and price points to be able to address what customers are looking for. But every company needs some kind of a disaster recovery plan in place that they can call on at moments, uh, at the inevitable moments when something goes wrong. Certainly. Yeah, and that, I imagine that, that is a large part of that is, is an in-depth discussion with your cloud service provider as well as your internal IT people well in advance of anything happening. Correct. And it, it, it almost comes full circle to what we were talking about earlier, meaning that Having an individual application or an individual platform available, not very interesting to me. But understanding that application or platform within the context of my overall business process and making sure that all of those applications are available in the same order at the same time so that when I do flip open my laptop, the applications are available, now that gets interesting to me. Net-net is it's not really a technology decision in its entirety. You know, if, if you hear... We have disaster recovery in the cloud. You don't really. What you have is the ability to replicate data and fail over VMs to have an application available. That's great for the application, but without understanding it in the context of the overall business process, you haven't accomplished too much. You know, that Intel system that you fail over has interdependent real-time reads and feeds to an iSeries platform that's sitting in one of your distribution centers. And if you don't have those connections available, and if you don't have an understanding of the hard-coded IP addresses that reside on that platform, or the ability to network those two things together at time of test or disaster, you have an available system that's not able to contribute to the overall business process. So when I say it's not only a technology issue, it comes down to understanding that business process, documenting it, and then making sure that all of the players are in the right place at the right time to be able to execute to that. So there's certainly a very programmatic and procedural portion of any disaster recovery that is very commonly, uh, very commonly admitted. Dominic, I really appreciate the opportunity to have this discussion with you on the uh, critical issues of legacy IT and disaster recovery. Thank you so much, Dominic Paul, for being with us today. My pleasure. Thank you very much. That was my conversation with Dominic Paul of SunGuard AS, talking about what managers need to know before updating their legacy IT systems. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch nearly 2,000 videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. 
Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn and follow us on Twitter at SCBrain. And don't forget to check us out on iTunes. Just search for Supply Chain Brain Podcast. See you next time. <laughs>